Where are the other nine? Many years ago in the very cold waters of Lake Michigan, a passenger ship carrying many passengers was doomed and sank in a vicious storm on Lake Michigan. The white caps were immense and relentless. And one very brave college student named Edward Spencer risked his life for six hours in the frigid waters and whitecaps and managed with a rope tied around his waist to rescue 17 persons from drowning. That heroic effort did not prevent, however, over 280 souls from drowning in that boating accident. Many years later on the west coast of the United States, there was a speaker who in his talk was referencing that night on Lake Michigan when Edward Spencer managed to save 17 souls. Unbeknownst to the speaker, Edward Spencer happened to be in the audience, an aged man by that point. Someone who recognized Mr. Spencer heard the story, went up to the speaker and advised him that Edward Spencer himself was in the audience. Obviously, the speaker invited Mr. Spencer up to the microphone and he asked him the elephant in the room question. He said, Mr. Spencer, I'm sure you remember that night vividly. What strikes you most about that night on Lake Michigan when you saved 17 souls? And he said, sir, what strikes me the most over all these years is that none of them said thank you to me. The problem was, <laughs> and the problem still is, that it's easy to forget to say thank you. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke 17, 11 to 19 is our text for this Thanksgiving Sunday morning. I'm going to begin running at verse 11 of Luke 17. Hear the word of God. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village there, met him ten men who were lepers, who stood far off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The first point of two in this message this morning is this. We can be quick to pray. And that's a good thing. We can be quick to pray, and these lepers... We're quick to call out to Jesus, and in that simple calling out for his help and healing, they were praying, and that was right. Back in Jesus' time, leprosy was the most feared illness. Cancer was not the fear of the people that Jesus rubbed shoulders with, nor was COVID. They weren't the diseases that frightened people in Jesus' time as they frighten us now. Leprosy. Leprosy was the dreaded disease when Jesus walked on the earth. Because a person with leprosy started to have certain aspects of paralysis, but then that got worse and worse until their muscles got deformed, and that got worse and worse until eventually their skin and their flesh got eaten away. Can you imagine people walking around Nassau with fingers missing, with toes missing, 
contorted faces, ears missing. In some cases, nose is missing. Can you imagine? Persons at the time of Jesus Christ's day on earth dreaded leprosy like we may have and still dread COVID. Leprosy for them was a sentence to a very hard life and to even more of a difficult, slow, and painful death. There was no cure for leprosy. And leprosy was extremely contagious. You could catch it from contact, even minimal contact with a person who had the disease. And so lepers in Jesus' day were customarily, summarily, quarantined from all healthy persons. I believe the All Saints camp on the south edge of our city started out as a leper colony. But thankfully, there are now very few cases of leprosy in the Commonwealth, and the camp now is used for other purposes. At Jesus' time, if you were a leper, you only had leper friends. You could have no other friends. If you were a leper in Jesus' time, you left your daddy and your mommy. You couldn't live with them anymore. Your brothers and your sisters, those you used to go to school with, and you lived a life of isolation in a leper colony, a quarantined situation until you died of leprosy. Back in the time when Jesus ministered on earth, lepers were required by Jewish law to yell out, unclean, 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 when they were in 100 yards of a healthy person. 100 yards from this pulpit is somewhere far across Collins Avenue into Palmdale. When a leper was that close to a healthy person, the law of the land said you had to yell out, unclean. I'm unclean, I'm unclean, stay away from me. How lonely, how stigmatized such a life must have been. That was the life of a leper. Lepers were feared outcasts, unwelcome, undesirable, Persons that other healthy persons believed were dangers of causing slow deaths to those who were not sick. And so lepers had very, very little to no hope in life. When those 10 lepers saw the Lord Jesus, they immediately wanted to meet him. They kept their 100 pace distance from the Savior but they wanted to meet him across the expanse that had to be between them because they'd heard of him. Somehow they'd come to know that he could heal the ill and they wanted to be healed more than anything else. And they were quick to pray their own short, to the point, unfancy prayers. Lord have mercy. Please heal us. I've noticed that in my own life and the lives of others, I've observed that sometimes the very best prayers to pray are not fancy and long prayers. They're short and to the point prayers. And these lepers, by yelling out to Christ, were praying, asking for him to heal them. Urgently, they yelled, 
And so we note together that it can be very easy for us to be quick to pray. And I would submit that we are the quickest to pray when we have the biggest problems in our lives, right? When we are facing problems on many sides, deep problems we do not know what to do about, we are quick to pray. We can be quick to pray for friends when we're lonely, quick to pray for solutions when we're bullied, quick to pray for relief when we're in pain, health when we're sick, passing grades in school when we're not understanding, money when we're broke. We're quick to pray when we have problems. We pray for safety when we're scared, protection when we're threatened, direction when we're uncertain, relief when there's more month than there's money. We're quick to pray when we have the problems that we all have from time to time. And the truth is, the more needy we feel, the more quickly we are inclined to pray. Prayer is our declaration of dependence on God. The United States formed with a declaration of independence from Great Britain But prayer is the Christian's declaration of dependence on God. The corollary, the flip side, the other side of that statement is when we as Christians do not pray, it is our declaration of independence from God. Well, all of the ten lepers prayed. Soon as they recognized it was Jesus, they called out to him, Have mercy on us, Lord. They prayed. There's a second thing that I want you to see in this message. Not only can we be quick to pray, but sadly, we can be slow to praise. We can be quick to pray when we feel need, but we can be slow to praise when God answers. Verses 14 to 19. So when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet giving thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus told the ten to go and to show themselves to the priests. We don't understand maybe why he would do that, but I will explain. Priests had a role in Jewish society, God given to examine persons with contagious diseases that the Old Testament law deemed to be unclean persons to see if their diseases were in remission. 
if they could get a certificate from the priest to say that their contagious disease, in this case, leprosy, was in remission, then they could take that certificate from the priest and re-enter society. It is interesting to me that the Lord Jesus did not tell the 10 lepers to go and wash. He didn't tell them to get to a doctor. He didn't tell them to take a medicine or an herbal remedy. He didn't tell them to eat differently. He didn't tell them to take vitamins. He didn't even tell them to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice or to give a tithe. He didn't tell them to exercise more or to pray more. And he didn't tell the one Gentile among the 10, the Samaritan, he didn't tell him to become Jewish. No, he told them all to go and show themselves to the priests so they could be examined. Now step back from that. If you have been living in a leper colony for any number of years, maybe you're missing a digit, maybe you're missing a toe or a finger, maybe your ear is partially gone, or maybe your nose is entirely gone. You've lived your life with leprosy 100 yards at least away from every healthy person, said goodbye to all your familial relationships, all your friendships with healthy people. You've lived all your days as a leper in a colony. And Jesus tells you, go show yourself to the priests they knew you go, a leper goes to the priest to see if he's got remission, see if he's healed. They knew they had leprosy. So by virtue of them doing what Jesus told them to do, turning on their heels from Jesus to go to the priest, they were demonstrating faith in the Lord Jesus' ability and willingness to heal them of their leprosy. They must have believed that Jesus had the power to heal their leprosy on the way to the priest to be examined or in front of the priest while the priests were examining them, that Jesus had the power to cleanse them, to clean them up, to, to heal them of their leprosy before the priest's eyes. Those are the two options. So they passed the test of faith. Jesus told them, go show yourselves to the priests. And they went. They had faith. That's amazing. And Jesus rewarded their faith in him. And he healed them. All ten of them. Can you imagine walking, however far they walked away from Jesus toward the priests? Looking at your hands, and they're not white and flaky anymore? Looking at your toes and your sandals? and you've got all of them? Can you imagine coming to understand that you're healed? That Jesus has taken away the greatest burden, medically speaking, that a person could have in that time, and it's gone? So what do they do? <laughs> Nine of... 10 of them went to the priests. And the priests, you're healed. I've seen you around town. You've been a leper for 20 years, five years, whatever. I know you have leprosy. You don't have it anymore. Here's your certificate. Amazing. Nine of them took the certificate from the priests and they ran to do whatever they wanted to do as free men. Tell their families 
Have a party. It didn't occur to these nine to go back to the one who gave them a whole new lease on life to say thank you. Except one. When he came to grips with his healing, when he came to grips with being ceremonially clean, that he could be integrated back into his family, into society, into working, into loving, he turned on his heel and he went back to Christ to say thank you, to thank God. He knew Christ was God, to give glory to God, to fall on his face in reverential worship, praise to the one who did for him what he probably never imagined could be done for him until Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests. And the text says, and he was a Samaritan. He wasn't Jewish. He was a half-breed according to the Jewish evaluation of family trees. Jews hated Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four, it was outlandish to Jews that Jesus, a Jew in his humanity, would go to a well at Sychar in Samaria and talk to a Samaritan woman. And she knew it was odd because she said, you're speaking to me, a woman, and I'm a Samaritan? Jews didn't even speak to Samaritans. If they had yearbooks in high school, the Samaritan was the one voted most likely to never know God. Because Jews felt Samaritans' mode of worship was wrong. Jews believed that all of the covenants of God and therefore all of the salvation of God was not offered to Samaritans, Jews believed. It was just for them as God's chosen people. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They hated them. And it was the Samaritan of all people. It was the Samaritan who went back and said, thank you. And Jesus said, of the Jewish cured lepers, weren't there 10 healed? Where are the other nine? Between the lines, where are those who are in covenant relationship with me who would adhere to the Mosaic law, who would make the sacrifices and keep the feast prescribed by the Mosaic law. Where are those guys? Where are the guys who have every spiritual advantage to know the true and living God, Yahweh? Where are they? Jesus knew where they were. They weren't in front of him saying thank you. You see, those 10 lepers, nine of whom were Jewish and one was Gentile, a Samaritan, they all passed the test of faith in Christ because they went to the priest to show themselves to the priest, but only one passed the test of gratitude. We are assembled here this Thanksgiving, Lord's Day. The majority of us have passed the test of faith in Christ for salvation, but have we flunked the test of gratitude to the Savior? 
Do we owe him thanks for things we've taken credit? Have we been slow to tell people around us that the things that they think are good in our lives are not because of our educations, not because of our strength or smarts or industry, but the good things in our lives are all of God to us. To have the breath I have to preach, to have the heartbeat I have to live is from God. Do we owe him thanks this Thanksgiving, Lord's Day? Weren't there nine cured? Weren't there 10 cured? Where are the other nine? What a sad question Jesus had to ask. Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us why they may not have gone back to thank Jesus, but uh, Charles L. Brown speculates, interestingly enough, why did only one cleansed leper return to thank Jesus? Here's some suggested reasons from Charles L. Brown. One waited to see if the cure was real. One waited to see if it would last. One said he would see Jesus later. One decided he had never had leprosy in the first place. One said he would have gotten well anyway. One gave the glory to the priests. One said, oh, well, Jesus didn't really do anything. One said just any rabbi could have done it. One said I was already much improved. (laughs) Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Flip that coin. Discount your many blessings. Explain them all away one by one. And it will silence your thanksgiving by a ton. Nine doing the wrong thing makes the one who did the right thing seem a little lonely, a little dwarfed, a little much in the minority, but the right thing is always the right thing no matter what the crowd is doing. And you may be in a workplace, you may be in a marriage, you may be in a home, you may be on a street, We're coming to this building to thank God for life every Lord's Day is something the rest of the people around you do not do. Still the right thing to do that. You may give thanks for your food at a restaurant and no one else in the restaurant bows before they eat to thank God for the meal in front of them at the restaurant. It's still the right thing to do. Do it. You may turn a compliment back on the Lord who gave you everything you have and made you who you are and nobody else does that when they're complimented, you still do the right thing. Give God the thanks. Not just on Thanksgiving weekend. There's always a reason to thank God. We're to thank God consistently and continuously. Matthew Henry is a name that some of you would know as a Bible scholar and commentator. He was once attacked by thieves and robbed of his purse, his wallet. And that night, Matthew Henry wrote these words in his diary. God, let me be thankful, number one, because I was never robbed before. 
Number two, because although they took my wallet, they didn't take my life. Number three, because although they took my all, it was not that much. And number four, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Four ways that Matthew Henry thanked God in his diary the day after he was robbed. There's always a reason to give thanks to God. Always a reason. Now it's interesting what Jesus said to the one Samaritan cured leper who fell on his face before Jesus, praised and thanked God for his healing and his whole new lease on life. It's very interesting that he said in verse 19, recorded for us, Jesus said, and he said to him, the healed Samaritan leper, arise, go your way, watch, your faith has made you well. You could translate the Koine Greek of that verse accurately by changing it slightly to be this. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Of the 10 who had faith in Jesus to heal their leprosy, only this one, Jesus said, was saved. Not just from leprosy, but from sin. the one that they would have thought was least likely to be saved of their sins. The one that they looked down their spiritual noses at and said there's no hope for them. There's no salvation for Samaritans, so the Jews thought. The one that wound up with salvation from sin was the most unlikely one, the thankful one, the praising one, the trusting one, the one with gratitude to God. The one who passed both the test of faith in Christ and gratitude to Christ. It ought to be in the DNA of the born-again believers that we, in our DNA, would be that we are grateful people, thankful people, content people, praise-prone people. Amazing. Said to the Samaritan, Arise, go home. Your faith has saved you. Mark Batterson has written something that's given me a lot of pause for thought. I'm slightly changing his quote, just slightly. Batterson writes, If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than the one million today who will not survive this week. If you have never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you are better off than 500 million people in the world. If you can attend a church meeting without fear of harassment, arrest, torture, or death, you are more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof overhead, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank or in a wallet or spare change in a dish someplace, 
You rank among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. If you can read, you are more blessed than over 2 billion people in the world who cannot read at all. So count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. It's true. When we feel our need, we can be quick to pray, and so we should. But it's also true that once we've prayed and God answers, we can be slow to praise. Let us not be found in the majority of the nine who had every spiritual advantage and did not have gratitude. Let us be found in the company of the minority who had little spiritual advantage but trusted Christ and was grateful to Christ for what he had done for him. When my mother-in-law, Lois, went to be with the Lord, she'd been hospitalized in Alabama for a time with some illness, but she went to be with the Lord rather unexpectedly on a Saturday. The next Lord's Day, the next morning after her passing, my father-in-law, Pastor Phil, went to his church, sat in his regular seat in the pew, and before the service started, a well-meaning Christian came up to him and said, Pastor Wisenhunt, what are you doing here today? Meaning, why would he come to church hours after his wife died? My father-in-law said, why wouldn't I be in church I have so much for which to thank the Lord. When Christ has been seen in true focus by us, by the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit, and we have seen the depravity and the depths of our lostness without him, and he grants to us faith to trust him and him alone for our salvation, our gratitude for the cross must never cease. For time, it must never cease. For eternity, our gratitude for the cross must never cease. Do you know how the symptom of having lost gratitude for the cross shows up for me and for you is we stop sharing our faith. We go silent about the gospel. We may figure that so-and-so isn't yet a Christian, but someone else will tell them. They've turned away from God in anger, but they're beyond hope. I won't share my faith in my business or my work because I don't know how it have ramifications on my job. I'm shy about sharing my faith because I'm a timid person and I don't want to be rejected. When we are not properly thankful for the cross of Christ, we go mute about the gospel with others. May I point out something that I pointed out before? A lot of people say, I do lifestyle evangelism. I live a Christian life before people who aren't Christians. Good. The Lord Jesus Christ himself lived perfectly for 30 years in a backwater town called Nazareth, helping his, his foster daddy in the carpenter's shop. 
He never swore when he hit his thumb with a hammer. He never cheated a customer. He never lied. He never lusted. He never disobeyed his earthly parents. Never. That's lifestyle evangelism. At the end of 30 years of living a perfect life before the people of Nazareth, what did they do when he came back having had his public ministry unveiled on the banks of the River Jordan and him be baptized? What, how did Nazareth receive Jesus Christ who lived a lifestyle of evangelism for 30 years without one sin? How did they receive him? They picked up stones to kill him. Because when he claimed to be God, they say he was blaspheming. Who are we? (laughs) Who are we to dare say, I won't share my faith with my lips, I'll share it with my life? Really? Is that enough? It's not not enough. It's a cop-out. We have to open our mouths and we have to share the love of God in the cross work of God by the Son of God for the glory of God. If we won't do it, the redeemed, the church, no one else will. The angels can't. It's our job. When the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead appeared alive after being dead for 40 days before ascending back to his father's right hand, the world needed to be one. What was the plan? The plan is, then was the plan now. That people who would trust in Christ alone for salvation would share verbally with others who don't know Christ yet and invite them to trust Christ for salvation. There was no plan B. There is no plan B. There will be a funeral here on Saturday. And when people come to funerals, this will be the 68th funeral I've conducted as the pastor of your church. When people come to a funeral, they face their mortality in a way that is totally unique. If you come to a funeral without facing your own mortality, there's something wrong with you. If the pastor can say over the casket, she trusted Christ alone for salvation, she rests in peace. Wonderful. But if the pastor knows the deceased did not trust Christ as Savior before death, he better not say she'll rest in peace because she isn't. Funerals close the eyes of the dead and open the eyes of the living. There is nobody that you will meet this week that doesn't know Christ as Savior who hasn't experienced a death near to them in the last few years. I'm sure of it. COVID, the aging church we have, the aging country we live in, you will not find a lost person this week that hasn't been impacted personally by death lately. They're wondering about heaven and hell. They're not sure. 
they, if they have anything, it's only a hope-so salvation, but not a no-so salvation that we can know through the scriptures and through the Son of God, who's the center of the scriptures. I urge you, therefore, I plead with you, therefore, to share the gospel this week where I am not anywhere in, in, around. I'm one person. My job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, including evangelism. I can only evangelize the people right in front of me this week. You all will meet people, spend time with people, rub shoulders with people this week that I will never see. Share your faith. Give a credible presentation of the gospel. Invite people to trust Christ for salvation. That might be the last conversation you have with them before you or they die. Life is a vapor. So teach us. The psalmist said in Psalm 90, 12, so teach us, because we need learning. So teach us to number our days. They're finite. None of us lives forever on earth. So teach us to number our days, to apply our hearts unto wisdom. Wisdom in the Hebrew mind is not the Greek idea of academic facts. Wisdom in the Hebrew mind is skillful living. What is more skillful for the Christian than to live evangelistically in a lost and perishing world? I can't think of anything. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the leper that came back. We want to emulate his example. And Lord, we want to give thanks to you for all things properly. But Lord, give us grace to give thanks to you regularly for the cross. For Calvary's lamb, the world's only hope. Oh Lord, loosen our lips that in obedience and Holy Spirit enablement, we would share our faith the faith for once delivered to the saints. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name, amen.